a mother from a rural area had talked about giving her like four month old infant Coca-Cola in his bottle because she was concerned about the safety of the drinking water. That's Elizabeth Donaldson, and you're listening to Ending Hunger and Malnutrition. Can it really be done? I'm Sivan Youssef, Senior Program Manager at the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI. In this podcast, we talk to the world's top scientists, policymakers, and practitioners about ending hunger and malnutrition in under a decade. We teamed up with a group of passionate, engaged public health grad students at the University of Michigan. Each episode, one of the students will conduct an interview for us. Diabetes is now the number one cause of death in Mexico. The average Mexican eats 450 pounds of processed foods and sugary drinks each year. Mexico's journey to obesity has happened in just a few decades. Natalie Manichius talks to Elizabeth Donaldson, a scientist now at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Dr. Donaldson interviewed a group of people who thought, if Mexicans' food habits change so quickly for the worse, can they also change back? She tells us the story of how Mexico put a tax on soda and the challenges it faced along the way. So this is a specific excise tax in Mexico of one peso per liter. And uh, it was passed in 2013, went into effect in January of 2014. And so the tax was specifically levied on concentrates, powders, syrups, um, flavor extracts added to beverages. So it's any kind of beverage that has an added sugar or kind of caloric sweetener to it. Um, so that could include, this is actually in Mexico, it's broader than some other policies I've seen proposed in the U.S. in terms of it can include kind of like fruit drinks um, or fruit juices if they're kind of have these added um, sweeteners and caloric additions. Um, so it could include like bottled teas and coffees and sports drinks and that type of thing too. So the tax went into effect in 2014. Uh, what are some of the changes that have been observed since and have any of those aligned with what were projected initially? They are seeing an effect on consumption and that seems to be sustained in terms of people are consuming fewer sugary drinks. And so that would be in the direction that was projected. And I believe in terms of the magnitude of that effect, it is in line with what what they projected and that it was going to you know, start to get down into the 10, 20% um, decline in consumption. But I know if the tax had been, the early models projected if the tax had been like a two peso per liter, that it would reduce the price of the drink even greater, obviously, and or, or make the price of the drink even higher and um, reduce consumption even more. But it's definitely showing an early impact in consumption. I'm not aware yet that they've been able to track kind of any markers of overweight or obesity or kind of metabolic changes in terms of, of diabetes, but I know that's that's planned. Is there any research showing that since this sort of nudging away from sugar-sweetened beverages, if consumers are replacing these with other foods or beverages, or has that been looked at to date? Since the Mexico tax was pretty broad in terms of what it covered, that's actually um, potentially beneficial to in terms of substitution because you don't have like you know, a specific sports drink being exempt that people could go to. Um, if they're kind of across the board, all increasing in price, then you would expect people would kind of move um, potentially and substitute to water. Um, but they're definitely looking, 
I know in terms of whether people are eating more sweet snacks, um, you know, high caloric snacks, actually a, a kind of junk food tax, as they called it, was passed around a similar time in Mexico. It was kind of tacked on at the end. Um, and the advocates I spoke to weren't, you know, pushing that by any means, but it kind of got added in the end in the legislative process. So that could be an interesting wrinkle in Mexico that I'm sure they're calculating in, in kind of their study of the effect. But I don't know for sure how that's all playing out. I wonder, too, if you can talk a bit about just the challenges that took place in terms of implementing this. And also, especially, I was very curious about the industry pushback. Uh, you know, major beverage manufacturers in Mexico are hugely present uh, across the country and, uh, you know, even in rural areas. I remember specifically speaking to a physician, an endocrinologist, who was talking about having younger and younger patients um, kind of come in with early metabolic changes signaling diabetes. And he gave an example of a a mother from a rural area had talked about giving her like four month old infant Coca-Cola in his bottle because she was concerned about kind of the safety of the drinking water and um, that this, you know, both in terms of like concern for the safety of the drinking water, but also uh, not to pick on Coca-Cola specifically, but like the major beverage manufacturers um, kind of, you know, being able to drink those beverages um, are somewhat of a status symbol in some areas. So you've got kind of uh, this very powerful industry kind of permeating meeting all corners of the society, um, especially those who can least afford to get sick and, you know, get diabetes. Yeah, so there were a variety of campaigns um, and there were like paid mass media campaigns that the, the proponents of the tax put out, you know, that were highlighting the 12 spoonfuls of sugar in various sodas um, and then, you know, kind of the link between sugary drink consumption and diabetes. So you have kind of that... Uh, fear or emotion factor in a lot of these campaigns that they were trying to drive. And then the opponents, um, you know, were kind of across the board in uh, some tactics that you see in the U.S. too, that, um, you know, having front groups kind of push certain issues so it doesn't look like it's the beverage industry per se. Um, but then when the advocates would kind of dig down and see that this group didn't exist before the tax um, was, you know, discussed and that you can kind of look back in certain situations at who was funding what. Um, and it just, it was an interesting uh, cross-section of people that were kind of opposing the tax. Um, but then, you know, obviously you have like the sugarcane producers and um, the multinational beverage industries kind of opposing it, saying things like, you know, it's important to have balance in your life so that you can have sugary drinks as long as you exercise or dance, um, have an active lifestyle to kind of combat um, what the proponents were saying about this clear link between consuming sugary drinks and, and potential health, uh, negative health consequences. What can we learn from Mexico's example and especially in the U.S. where we are facing similar issues with obesity and diabetes? Well, I think one of the things I really took away in talking to the advocates that I think um, folks interested in, in similar policy interventions in the U.S. could really learn from was the, the breadth of the coalition of stakeholders that they assembled. So I was really struck by the fact that they were able to get you know, water rights, human rights groups, pub the more traditional public health groups that you would think would come out in favor of a, of a tax. Um, but they were able to, you know, they were able to talk to consumer rights groups. Um, and I think in the U.S., we could we could do that better in some of these policies. And I know there are groups that are doing that and they're actually talking to the folks in Mexico. Um, there's a lot of cross-collaboration. 
And what do you see as the next frontier in terms of addressing this obesity, diabetes issue in Mexico or even the, the U.S.? Are there some interesting developments going on? Or from your perspective as a public health professional, what do you think might be the next step? So I think in Mexico, kind of evaluating the level of the tax could be an interesting next step. But I think in addition to taxation, I think there are so many different policy options and things being considered at kind of all levels. Um, And by that, I mean, you know, there are federal policies that you can pass um, and they were working on different kind of uh, prohibiting advertising to children was another tenet of what they were working on, which I think is hugely important. Um, And they were working on breastfeeding initiatives and just a whole host of other initiatives at that level. But in addition, there are ways kind of at uh, county, province, state level um, to, you know, change purchasing patterns of different large uh, government entities. You know, you could have like uh, government purchasers or people at parks kind of not purchasing sodas or having those readily available. There's like access issues. And so, you know, in the food system, there are many different ways to uh, attack an issue. You've obviously invested a lot of time in this issue. What about addressing obesity and diabetes either in Mexico or broadly, um, what about it gives you hope for the future? I have a lot of hope for the future in this. I, I mean, at some points, I think um, in working in you know, in my dissertation and studying kind of the factors that promoted or inhibited obesity prevention policies, it can feel kind of hopeless at points because you think a policy from a researcher perspective, from a public health perspective, has wonderful merit, but then it doesn't pass um, because, you know, it's not just one person's opinion or one set of research that will kind of um, push a policy through. I, I don't like the focus on kind of this individual responsibility because I think you you can't expect um, people without having the tools or the knowledge to to make a behavior change. Behavior change is hugely difficult. Overweight and obesity is is a tremendous issue. It's a really difficult issue. Losing weight is a, a extremely difficult. Um, but I think there's hope in that people are resilient and able to change if if again put in these environments and contexts. Um, you know the factors around them make it easy for them to do that, you know, so they have access to healthy foods, they have access to clean drinking water in Mexico, they have, you know, uh, an incentive not to buy sugary drinks, but an incentive to buy something else. They have the knowledge that uh, a soda wouldn't be the best um, for their children, but they also have the means to afford something else. Um, So I think I have hope because I know uh, that people can, you know, perform or, you know, behave really astounding when given the tools. But we need to be able to set up those policies, environments, um, those environments in general that give folks that opportunity. Elizabeth Donaldson is a social scientist at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Just to note, her views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of the Center for Tobacco Products, the FDA, or the U.S. government. Her work on the Mexico soda tax was in her personal capacity when she was a doctoral student at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. To read her report, Google, Advocating for Sugar-Sweetened Beverage Taxation, a Case Study of Mexico. Natalie Manichius is a grad student in the University of Michigan School of Public Health. This podcast is a joint activity of IFPRI's Nourishing Millions Project and the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. You can subscribe to this podcast and learn a lot more about IFPRI by going to the IFPRI website, 
www.ifpri.org or the Nourishing Millions website, nourishingmillions.ifpri.info. Today's show was produced by Natalie Manichius, Andrew Jones, Zach Rosen, and me, Sivan Yosef. Zach Rosen edited our interview. Music from today's show comes from the Free Music Archive. Until next time, let's innovate, learn, and speed up progress on ending hunger and malnutrition.